Welcome to the Leap Podcast. This is Kat Fan, Tammy Tran, and Tammy Bowie, your hosts for the Leap Podcast. Leap stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. Hello again, everybody. We are having a very exciting launch day because we are also releasing our second episode in conjunction with our first. In this episode, you get to meet Alisi Talua. Born in Tongva and raised in California, Alisi has a passion for serving her community. It has taken her through more of a decade of nonprofit work advocating for and advancing the rights of Pacific Islander. Currently, Alisi is a project. Currently, Alisi is the project director for the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander Data Policy Lab at the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. She leads all strategies and coordinates all activities for the NHPI Data Policy Lab. If you are familiar with the API diaspora, you will have noticed that systemically and systematically, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders in the United States are hidden and underrepresented because data is often not collected or reported in aggregate with other racial ethnic groups, despite decades of calls to disaggregate data, specifically for Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. The form of structural racism, data omissions often contribute to systemic problems such as inability to advocate, a lack of resources, and limitations to political power. This really reached a boiling point as Pacific Islander communities were disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 virus. Um, Alisi is this amazing thought leader and community organizer and the colorful history in which she shares through storytelling really blew Tammy Bowie and I out of the water. An interesting note, in addition to this more technical health-based pivot in her career, she previously she previously worked to build generational wealth for marginalized communities. And throughout this conversation, we really try to we try to tackle the fact that generational trauma is passed down but so is resilience and I think that is something often that we don't talk about that I am fortunate that we get a chance to in this episode we answer the question of what do we pass down when we are made to feel invisible Anyway, we are so excited to have you here, Lisi. Like Tammy was alluding, I think your name has popped up in so many circles. And I'm, I think this is a great opportunity for you, for our audience to get to know a little bit about you. I will admit, I definitely have Googled your name many times. I'm trying oh. to piece together, <laughs> um, you know, any like background information in preparation for this episode. But I thought, why not just hear your story from you? the origin source. So if you can share with us a little bit about yourself, not like an interview setting, but just how you came um, into your leadership journey, like your familial history. I know it's really important um, in Pacific Islander culture and in general API culture to really honor where we've come from in order to move forward. And like Tammy said, the journey is very long. So let's get up to track. It is. Um, First of all, thank you so much for, for the invitation. I feel 
honored that um that you want to hear my story and so and also just to be in the presence of um amazing women leaders that's always an honor for me I'm, you know i'm i know i've known tammy tran and um you know tammy Bowie and your name is uh you know everybody knows uh, both of you um and i think i've followed both of your work from um, being in Orange County for a long time. Um, so I am a Tongan immigrant. Uh, my parents moved to the United States when I was 13. Um, and that's really important for me to share because um, it, it, I'm proud of the fact that I am solidly rooted in my culture and my cultural values. And it is the driving force behind um, who I am in the community and what I uh, aspire to achieve in service of community. Um, so I am a, I just want to make sure that I acknowledge that I'm a settler on um, Costanoa and Rumson Ohlone land here in Monterey, California. Uh, though I spent the last 15 years of my life in Southern California and, um, and uh, the pandemic brought me back spiritually um, and in the work to Southern California, um, though I'm physically here in, in the Central Coast. Um, I am really passionate about serving community and have done that in the past 15 to 20 years, um, although it was not necessarily um, the journey I saw for myself when I, I went into uh, when I went to school, I aspired to become a doctor and um, studied uh, biochemistry and uh, got my master's in biology and I love love science, love research. And I came into community because I felt like I can't be an effective physician um, without knowing what my community needs of me. And that was about 15 years ago. And here I am still in community. Really uh, this year, um, having lived through the pandemic, serving community through the pandemic, I realized that I was mistaken to expect that I would come into community and learn everything I needed in a couple of years and go back to medical school uh, and realize and accept it and accept and embrace that I needed this full journey. 15 years of community um, education, learning um, at the feet of my elders, really learning what it means to be of service needed 15 years of education. And so uh, I'm, I'm really humbled that that I, the community has given me that much grace to develop as a professional, as a person and as a community servant, um, having spent this much time here. So uh, I, that's the story of me that I want to share today. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for letting me share that. Well, Lisi, thank you for trusting us with your story. You know, you said something that really resonated with me, which is, um, you know, that you that the community trusts you. And I feel like we take so seriously, particularly those of us who have come from um, backgrounds where we relied on the shoulders of others, um, that we feel the need to pass on what they have given to us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is something that is true for all of our communities. And yet I also will raise my hand and say, but I don't always know all the um, specific nuances and um, cultural kind of treasures of each of our communities, whether I'm Vietnamese or whether you were talking about being Tongan. Um, I shared with Kat earlier, and you should know this, my mom's name is um, Tonga. So the funny oh, thing wow. was, 
Yes. The funny thing was growing up, her name is Tonga. So in Vietnamese, her name is Nga. And the, there's a first portion, which is the T-O. And that together it forms Tho um, Nga. Um, and it's, it's, and then, you know, of course, when she was working, people would just call it Tonga, you know, um, with no regard for correct pronunciation. Um, but it, so people would sometimes say, oh, Tonga, are you from Tonga? You know, are you from, are you Tongan? And she would say, no, I don't, you know, I, I'm Vietnamese, but um, I'm, I'm, I guess it's a long way of saying and sharing that as much as we feel close knit, we also have a lot to learn about one another. And I think storytelling is one of those ways that we preserve our culture, um, but also educate one another and educate those beyond our culture. And I was curious um, in your journey, are there things that stand out to you that um, remind you of like the the pieces of um, like what what parts of storytelling do you feel like are most important for listeners to understand about your community? If you, if you can point to a couple or, or is mm-hmm. it, is it too vast? I, I, are there certain, what are, what are the parts of storytelling when you talk about your community that, that are most important to you? Thank you. That's such an important question. Um, I always share, I always I put out a disclaimer that I am not a good storyteller, even though, um, you know, we are from oral traditions and we, sh- we there's an expectation that we know how to um, express ourselves when we when we talk. So mm-hmm. I'm always like. I'm a terrible storyteller. Um, ask anybody in my family. None of my jokes are funny. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> we're laughing now, we're laughing. <laughs> Use this recording as evidence at the next family party. <laughs> um, and and if, you, if you think I'm a good storyteller, just wait until you actually meet the real storytellers of our culture. Um, and so I think some of the things that I want to share about being a storyteller is um, there, there, like, like all of humanity, our experiences are vast. Um, and so our stories are varied and so unique. And although like we're one community and I say we as in Pacific Islanders, we're one, we're one community, we're made up of people from so many different cultures within that, right? The same thing with the Asian umbrella um, and that have unique cultures, unique languages, unique practices. And so the way that we tell our stories are slightly different from each other. Um, and, and that also goes for people that uh, are rooted in the islands where we are from. Um, their storytelling is very different from those that grew up uh, in diaspora um, who might tell their stories slightly differently. Um, and wow, what a profound thing for me to really think about with that question um, and thinking about a lot of our young people who uh, I've been seeing, you know, the, here's a couple of examples. Um, a lot of our young people are, have, uh, you know, first, second generation here in the United States have grown up around um, hip hop culture um, and have embraced uh, storytelling through poetry, storytelling through music, uh, which are, I feel like are inherent, intrinsic parts of us in our culture, but it's expressed in a different way because it's it's more along the lines of American culture with hip hop and um, black culture. Um, and so that's a very interesting way to see 
the world through the eyes of a first, second generation Pacific Islander who was born and raised in the United States compared to um, those that are back home that are still really rooted in um, telling stories through symbolism and um, proverbs and the, the, the ways that we use language. Um, and so I, in my work, I'm really passionate about preserving culture and language. And I constantly, like I, on YouTube, I, I will sit and watch speeches given by elders at like random occasions, because I just love the way that they, that they tell, that they deliver messages, right? So um, I know in my work, I try to weave in the way of our culture and the way that like we use oration and storytelling, um, but also trying to like fit it into social issues that are unique to our experiences here in the United States. So I hope that that's a good answer to what you're sharing, but you really made me think about this. Thank you for asking that. Elise, you know, there are no right answers. I, I, I really think what I heard from you is more the idea of the um, kind of like how you tell the story can vary. And, you know, maybe it's a check to me that it doesn't mean that there are certain content ideas of like you want to pass along A, B and C, but just that there are various ways that you continue to pass it on. So that's what mm-hmm. I took from that, Elise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think part of um and you, you bring something up because, you know, part of this work I've had to do like um, advocacy um, in Sacramento, in D.C. and have to like speak to legislators. And honestly, I've I know that there's a structure, right? Like, you know, this you know, this there's a structure when you go and you do your testimony or your you have to you know you have two minutes to deliver your message. I know for me when I do this, I always integrate my culture in that delivery, whether it's in the opening by like using a proverb as a hook or using a a core value in in my language to highlight like the spirit of the message that I'm delivering. I always try to integrate like cultural pieces because I hope that it's memorable when I deliver my message. I don't know if it's effective or not, but that's one way of doing that. No, I mean, I love that. I think it makes... Like, who are we without our cultures? Right. And I think I'm struggling or I was like, I guess not even struggling, just exploring this idea of like American individualism. It's like, I'm cat. Like, here are my individualistic personality traits. But at the same time, you know, like my culture, the Vietnamese identity where I grew up, Orange County, like the people I choose and maybe have no choice in surrounding myself with like inadvertently they will influence me. And that's a collective. So it's Mm -hmm. definitely a very interesting dichotomy that I think we, we can go back and forth on. And maybe it's not a bad thing that we can't stay in one place, whether it's like individualism or like a collective identity. I think that what you're talking about, Elise, with storytelling, I wonder if maybe this vibrant storytelling is the foundation of which maybe the native Hawaiian Pacific Islander communities is, you know, being resilient. And what I mean by that is like structurally we've seen in with COVID, with any type of data aggregation, with even stop Asian hate or stop AAPI hate, depending on who you're talking to, there is an erasure oftentimes of like native Hawaiian Pacific Islander communities. And I, it's not surprising that y'all have such vibrant storytellings because you are here. 
And I guess the next question I'm really curious about, I know you, I know you've done like generational wealth building um, work in your career, activism in your career. I think there's this idea that it takes seven generations to fully heal from trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, like for myself and Tammy, like that really centers around the Vietnam War. It mm-hmm. takes seven generations to really get over that. And what does that mean for your children, your children's children? Like, will my great grandchildren be the ones that are finally free of this? Mm-hmm. And by the time they're, you know, alive, what kind of trauma will I accidentally bring to them? But then on the flip side, there's so much resilience and positivity that I wonder, like, as we're trying to wean ourselves off from this trauma, like, how can we build up the next generation, right? With this idea that what are we passing down when we are made to feel so invisible? Like, will how do we get that visibility back? Like, how long will it take? Wow, you're asking like really big questions. I know, like Friday at eleven thirty. I love it. I love it. This is like a a shift in paradigm. It's Friday, but we're gonna have these really big. um, You're gonna be like manifesting this weekend. Yeah, I love it. Maybe it's also because we just um, wasn't the lunar eclipse like yesterday or true. It was some kind of moon alignment. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds accurate. Wow. Um, I am also, uh, I, I, the seven generations concept really resonates with me. Um, it's something that I keep at the center of my thinking in approaching work that we're doing in community, knowing that, um, in this capitalistic, um, you know, like fast driven society, there is a drive to like hustle and achieve and build wealth in this moment. Like right now you can do that. There's, there's just this um, spirit in this society that success means that uh, you see the, the outcomes in your immediate lifetime, which I think from the culture that I come from, isn't necessarily the drive and the approach for living our lives. Um, I, I think, um, and I think this is something that you both probably can identify with is like how important genealogy is and not just like literally where your descendants and where you come from and your ancestors, but also like in stories, in work, right? Like the, what is the genealogy of the work that I get to benefit from as the seventh generation of my ancestors? And so I keep that in mind in, in the work that I do, knowing that even the most minute part of my work needs to be intentional because I am planting seeds for whatever my seventh generation will be. And so I, I cannot expect to see the outcomes of my work in my lifetime. And so I have to put all the faith and love into whatever work I'm doing now, knowing that I'm planting seeds for another generation, which isn't always, I think, especially if you're a nonprofit, uh, you have to report on the outcomes of your work. And I'm like, I'm doing seventh generation work. (laughs) Um, Right. Come back seven generations from now. I'll get you your report. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, um, I don't, I don't know if I'm exactly hitting an answer here, but I'm just thinking out loud. Um, and something that I hear, I heard in part of your question is, 
this this idea around healing trauma. Um, and so just as much as we're investing in goodness that we want to see in the seventh generation, we also want to undo trauma um, and heal and hope that in seven generations are, you know, that generation is completely healed. But something that um that I yearn for is I want is like stories of my great great grandparents. I want to, you know, I'm you know, I'm asking my parents who are in their 80s, um, can you tell me about your grandparents and they they barely have any memories and and I think about like the loss of stories and in in the process of healing ourselves how much we shed also the stories that should continue to live in our genealogy so that the seven generations know that though they're healed these stories continue to teach us right so um, I don't know if I'm giving you any answers here, but I, you're making me think about um, the importance of like beautiful um, blossoming of things in the seventh generation, but also like the importance of whole, of keeping our stories alive in our genealogy, even the the stories that we are healing from. Stay tuned for more of the conversation after a quick message from our sponsors. Surprise! I guess in some ways, our sponsor is all of you, our amazing listeners um, who have stayed with us since season one, and also our new listeners who are just tuning in for season two. Though we mention Leap a lot, (laughs) not on accident at the Leap podcast, we just want to take this time to reintroduce ourselves to season one listeners and give a warm welcome to anyone who is just tuning in. The Leap is a national nonprofit organization with a mission to achieve full participation and equality for Asian and Pacific Islanders through leadership, empowerment, and policy. We are guided by this philosophy of keep your values, develop new skills, because we believe APIs can retain their culture, identity, and values while developing new and vital skills. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a five-star review, and consider donating to leap.org slash donate. And with that being said, let's get back to the episode. I love that, Alisi. You know, there's... um the the found the the backdrop Alicia just so you know to doing this podcast was all about storytelling it was taking ownership of our own voices and elevating them and they maybe you know you are not speaking on behalf of all Pacific Islanders right. we you know we we are telling individual stories and I and I feel like so often there is a desire to do these big things right and we're, we are talking about big questions. And I always stop and remind myself that even if I make incremental change, it is still change. Um, And I'm willing to do that, even if it is one by one, because that is what it will take. And when I hear you talk about planting the seeds, I feel like that is just so amazing and beautiful that you remind yourself that you're planting these seeds for these seven generations later. And so my question for you is in your work and in your um, interactions with others, particularly young people, do you feel like 
like they share your patience? Do you feel like <laughs> they want to be able to do those things with you and, and share um, that level of like intention? And, um, and how do you get them to, to see it that way? Because I think it's really hard for all of us to think beyond like, you know, tomorrow or, or get past like what you said, which is like showing outcomes. Right. Um, yeah. But it's that it's that thinking about what you said, but planting seeds for like much further down the line. I guess I'm saying multiple things here, but um, feel free to reflect however you'd like. Yeah, I feel like I actually have an answer for this one. Um, <laughs> you had answers for the other ones. <laughs> you had great answers for the other ones. Just want to put that out there. <laughs> I think the, the quick answer is no. I don't think that a lot of our young people have the patience. That's but facts. I, As a young person, that is very true. I have no but I also feel like when I was a young person, I didn't have the patience mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it uh, and and being my you know, I'm 44. So being in my 40s now, recognizing that I was once the young person that didn't have patience and wanted to to do all the things and to solve all the problems and had all the answers I thought. Um, and so I tried to build as much patience as possible. I don't know if it's patience, really. It's like build abundance of grace for the younger me that I see in younger people now, because, you know, like I am here now and I have all the faith that when we invest in our young people, they can become their greater selves, you know, and, and, and it's a phase that comes with being young and, and coming into yourself and coming into knowledge. So I'm going to share a Tongan proverb that is very applicable to this. So there's Tongan proverb, poto poto aniumui. Um, and it translates literally to the wisdom of a young coconut. Um, and so the, the, the meaning of this is that um, when, I, when a coconut tree is growing, uh, when it reaches an age where it starts to bear coconuts, it bears a lot of coconuts all at once. Like there's a lot, you know, you've, if you've ever seen like a coconut tree that just has a lot of coconuts, but it's like relatively a young tree. It's, th- it's that age where it's just coming into the age of bearing coconuts. So, and it's not until it starts to like get a little bit older and older that it's, it bears like a, only a certain amount um, at a given time. And it doesn't, you know, it's not like overly bearing coconut. And what this means is like young people, when they come into knowledge and when they come into themselves, they are at heightened enthusiasm, heightened passion. They want to, you know, do so much. That's the stage of their lives where they're bearing a lot. They're just like, oh, I know this thing and I'm just going to talk about it. And I'm going to have all these ideas and we should do all these things. Um, and it's not until they get a little bit older and older than where they learn to like, OK, do this thing here and build my capacity here and build uh, these values here. And and so um, it's both. So the the you use a proverb, usually if you're a younger person and you get up and share a speech or you get or you're doing a presentation, you use it as a disclaimer, you know, 
excuse any remarks I make. I, you know, I'm just poto poto a new muy. Like I'm recognizing that I'm a young coconut. And so if I say anything out of turn, it's like asking for permission, asking for grace, um, because I'm in this stage where I'm just going to like bear as many coconuts as I want to. Um, so it's usually used in that way by younger people, but also when older people use it, it's usually asking for grace on behalf of younger people and reminding people and reminding everybody that there is space for young people and we need to recognize that that's where they are and and embrace that rather than like ridicule it. So that's a, a longer answer to that question. But yeah, I I think it's just recognizing that that's a stage we all went through. Um, and as older people that have come through that, creating space for that and then finding ways to teach and mentor, you know, some of our emerging brilliant young leaders. I'm going to use that in my next staff meeting. I'm going to be like, I'm just a young coconut. <laughs> I love that. I, I think it's really... It, it it made me feel very affirmed that it's like both generations, right? Like it's the young people asking for grace, but it's also the older generation making space mm-hmm. for us to, I guess, throw y'all the coconuts that we can until we kind of, you know, funnel in our energy a little bit more. But speaking of that, Elise, I am so blown away by these very like enlightening nuances, I would say, like, I don't think we get the opportunity often to hear about like Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander culture, communities, and just to shift it back into maybe more structural current events that are happening. Something that I think about often is language. And I know you're very passionate about it. The season that we're in right now is very much revolving around the rise of hate crimes. What does it mean to be like an API person or even AAPI person? What does it mean to be American, but also rooted in our culture? And something that really struck me was this, the two different terms that are used, depending on what communities you're talking to, or even what part of Twitter you're on, to be honest with you. It's like, is it stop Asian hate? Is it stop AAPI hate? Because there is a difference. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a difference of a couple letters, but those couple letters represent thousands, if not millions of people. So I'm so curious on your opinion, personally, as a leader, and maybe, you know, like professionally as a leader, when we're talking about these rise of anti-Asian hate, how is that affecting the PI community? Like, how is this, these different terms of stop Asian hate and stop API hate? Like, where do, where do we fall on that? Mm -hmm. So my, I'm going to give you my personal opinion, but of course it's informed by the, my, my professional work. um, Love it. Even better. What a concept (laughs) rooted in facts and evidence. (laughs) When, when some of the language around this started to come out, you know, uh, as you noted, you, you saw both um, stop Asian hate and then stop AAPI hate. And uh, my, my initial, my first reaction was that use of AAPI in that was not accurate. And it was not accurate to me in that. And even in this moment, because it is the Asian community that is suffering these hateful acts, not necessarily the PI community. Um, and if And if there is a desire to include PI in any rhetoric around stopping hate, the violence that PI community faces looks very different. The kind of violence that that we would talk about if we want to talk about 
violence against PI community. It is really about colonial violence um, and the violence of colonization on our home on our homes, particularly the, the islands that have a formal relationship with the United States. And we can just start with Hawaii. You know, it's the violence was the illegal overthrow and perpetual occupation of Hawaii to this day. That's that's the violence that is Pacific Islander, if that needs to be included in the movement. Um, however, Having said all that, that's not necessarily what what is the focus of that tagline right now. Right. And so I was one of the people that that said, like, it should stay stop. It should say stop Asian hate because having P.I. in that name to me as a Pacific Islander is inaccurate because we need to center the violence that's happening to our Asian American communities. And we're, we're not impacted by that violence directly. And so we're taking up space that we shouldn't be taking up right now in this moment. And so, um, but if folks continue to insist on using AAPI, then there is erasure there because you're using AAPI to mean Asian American community that is being impacted by this hate violence. And so the fact that you the AAPI is being used there means that you're disregarding the fact that PI stands for a group of people in that label that's not necessarily being impacted. I would correct people. I I was passionate about voicing that because we need to center our Asian American community who are the ones that are suffering from this hate. And as a Pacific Islander who is part of this larger family, I need to throw my energy behind supporting our Asian American community. And the fact that PI was tagged onto the name meant we were taking up space that we didn't need to take up in that moment. Our violence and the work against that can happen in another time and in another space and not in this conversation, because I need to be supporting my Asian American community who's suffering right now. And I understand um, we're all working through that, you know, that that label. And I appreciate conversations like this because I at least have the opportunity to share my own personal opinion about it. But I hope that it also is an invitation uh, for people to really think about what this how, how much this label really means to us and the erasure and the versus inclusion that comes with it. You know, like you, Alisi, I totally appreciate a thousand percent um, the, looking at this as an invitation. I'm so glad Kat asked the question because I think so often we can make assumptions about things or we might wonder about things in a vacuum or with one another with the same type of mentality, but never fully discuss them. So I just feel really appreciative that we were able to address this question and get one person's opinion. So thank you, Alisi, for that. I love the question that we always ask during season one, which is what's a leap of faith you've taken just to visualize for folks, because I think when you are going through a tough time or when you feel like backed in a corner, it can feel really hard to even move, let alone take a leap somewhere. So what's one that you have had recently, Elisa, or one that's like really powerful or meaningful to you? Oh my gosh. I know we're not letting you off that easy. One more 
question before you can enjoy your weekend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is really like one leap of faith that I've taken recently is like taking on this position um, because like it's not in the community. Like I spent like over a decade in nonprofit space, in community based work. Um, um, and so I had actually you know, let, moved away from Southern California because I was going to, you know, do some other things on my own. When I was um, approached about this position, I was like, am I going to get back into like this structured work? But we've never, you know, like data is one of the core needs of our community, you know, speaking about visibility earlier. And there is an opportunity to build this work that we've been saying we need for so long under the guidance of Dr. Nines Ponce, who is an amazing, phenomenal woman and leader I'm at a place like UCLA, where we can really pull in resources, create space, create meaningful work for our community. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I was supposed to be doing like consulting things so I can do other things on my own. I leap with my whole heart. I'm like, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I really, really believe in this. So I'm going to do it. And then I'll I'll trust that I'm going to be led in the direction that is right for my life and all the intentions I've set for myself will be part of this journey. And so I'm still figuring it out, but it has felt right this whole time. It's been hard because it's like new work that I've had to figure out and learn as a 44 year old in this career. I'm like learning a whole new world of like data systems and all kinds of things. But I'm trusting this process that this is if my purpose in life is to be of service for my community, then this is the path I'm taking. So that's that's been the biggest leap of faith that I've had. And it's been a huge leap. I always cringe when people talk about something uh, about myself. So I'm going to say this for you, Elise. I, I read this cat put something together about some of the quotes that you've given and I wanted to read it. So this comes directly from you. And I wanted to ask a question related to it. So, so this is a quote you've um, said before. You say, I always tell people in the work to bring their entire selves into the room and not to divorce themselves from their experiences because our stories as Pacific Islanders are already invisible as it is. So when we're in the room, we might as well bring the entire village with us. And you gave this uh, talk at a Leadership Institute presentation. And I wanted to ask you about it because, you know, you are a project director for the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander Data Policy Lab at UCLA, which some may find uh, very intimidating. You know, how how does one become a project director for something like this? And so my question is, is it a choice? Is it a choice that we have to make between speaking up and and being an advocate, a, a, a voice, a community leader, um, and being a doctor or a lawyer. Um, it seems to me like you will speak up whether you are an official capacity as a project director or as my friend, um, or as a member of the community or a sister, that's just who you will be Alicia. And so my question to you is what is your advice for those who may be listening, particularly young people who may wonder, like, how did Elise get to this path? How do I do that? And do I have to make that choice between being a, a doctor versus being a community leader or whatever that choice might be? 
thank you for that question. This, the realization that um, of what I shared in that quote came because of my work with young people. I used to, you know, I helped to develop and, and run this um, Pacific Islander Leaders of Tomorrow program that we created for Pacific Islander college students or those that are college age. We started to share that because one of our goals was that with that program was to encourage our young people to pursue higher education as a vehicle to bringing resources and creating change in the community. And so many of our young people want to go to college, but don't have the resources. Or if they do go to college, there are so few of them that um, they can, can, you know, they continue to feel invisible um, and and then and then are forced to make these choices. Right. Like I have to become this person in order for me to fit in, in order for me to seem successful or in order in order for people to understand me. Um, And so they become the college student um, and then leave all the cultural pieces of themselves at home when they are in the classroom. Um, and so then I feel like that it becomes like that is usually at the root of being an imposter, having imposter syndrome is because many of us divorce the core of ourselves um, that, you know, I feel like pe- being in Western space, we feel ashamed of or that is shamed out of us. Um, and so I came to the realization that the cultural pieces of us the parts of our village that we often leave behind to be more American in in institutions that usually are made to make us feel like we don't belong, like higher education. Um, the, the cultural pieces of us is what will carry us through. Those are the pieces that make us resilient. Right. It's like I'm, I feel like I'm going to get emotional. Those are the things that rem- remind us why we're doing this in the first place. And if we constantly are cutting those pieces of ourselves out, then we're always going to feel empty. We're always going to feel like we don't belong in these spaces. We're always going to feel like we need to fit into somebody else's template of what it means to be a leader. Um, and so I learned that from that work. Um, and I feel like. Uh, part of also like part of like my own passion about like decolonizing and decolonizing space and decolonizing who we are is to be fully proud of the things that have made us who we are and bring all of that into the room rather than like now I got to put on a blazer and talk a certain way so that I can fit in Um, and I feel like it is a choice Right. Like sometimes people feel like they have to make those choices, but you can choose differently Um, and you you can choose to. It's like the true test of like diversity, inclusion, you know, a lot of that work going on right now. It's like we can just start by bringing our entire selves to whatever space that we step into. Yeah, I love that. No, I, I, I definitely feel how much you mean it, Elise. And I think that resonates something with us a lot too, especially like this is the Leap podcast. And I think a big ethos of what Leap does and thankfully like what so many people also believe in is that 
within the API community, we already have the leaders we need that can advocate for us. We don't need to outsource. We don't need to change like who we are as a community and what our cultural values are. Like that's just as important in leadership as is like Western characteristics. Like we can, there's no one way to be a leader. And you have definitely shown that so eloquently. Thank you. I think I I can, one thing I can add to that is um, you don't have to choose one or the other identity. You know what I mean? You can do both. Like you can both be in a suit, speak a certain way and still carry your culture at the core of you into that room. You know, like, I I think that's the thing is like the, uh, there's an expectation that you have to choose to be uh, American or not. Um, and when you can really just be both fully. 